This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Na mihi nui and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance aho. If you're a regular listener, you might remember that earlier this year I did a story on whether dogs have empathy. And I visited the clever canine lab at the University of Auckland to see Wilma the Black Labrador getting tested. If you missed that story, don't worry, because, firstly, you can always find it on our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. And secondly, tonight's story features another Black Labrador, carrying out tests in a completely different dog lab at another university. Tim Edwards is a behavioural psychologist at Waikato University and he's really interested in scent detection in animals and what you can do with that ability to sniff out subtle odours. In the past, he's worked to train giant African-pouched rats to sniff out tuberculosis. Now he's working on other projects, including teaming up with fish biologist Nick Ling to train dogs to sniff out pest fish. Yep. You heard me right. Fish. I head to Waikato to meet Tim and one of the dogs, but first, Nick takes me to the fish lab to introduce me to the problem. What we've got in this tank is a mixture of different uh, exotic fish species. We've got some koi carp. Uh, we've also got one goldfish. And we've also got a hybrid between koi carp and goldfish. Those two hybridise? They do hybridise, yeah. So they're, they're closely enough related that they can actually hybridise. Now tell me a bit about koi carp, because they're a bit of a pest fish in the Waikato, aren't they? They are a huge pest fish in the Waikato, yeah. So um, some of the work that we've done on fish surveys in the Waikato indicate that they may constitute up to about 70% of the fish biomass in the lower Waikato. Some of them get up to several kilos um, body size. And in some lakes around here, they can exceed half a tonne per hectare in body mass. They can cause a lot of damage. They stir up sediments and resuspend nutrients back into the water column, which is not a good idea when you've got shallow lakes that are already nutrient-enriched from, from agriculture and the like. Um, just the resuspension of those sediments. So they're just stirring up that problems. mud all just the time. Just stirring up that mud all the, all the time and just resuspending the, those nutrients back into the water column. Um, they uproot plants and destroy um, plants, which, of course, plants are good at taking nutrients out of the water. Um, stirring up the mud not only brings nutrients into the water column, it also increases water turbidity, so that decreases light levels into the water column and causes problems for plant growth. Um, so you end up with a system where the whole lake reaches a tipping point 
and turns over to an algal-dominated community rather than a, a macrophyte plant-dominated community. And once you've got to there, it's almost impossible to turn the situation back around. Um, and then ultimately, of course, with the resuspension of nutrients and also just the simple biomass of the animals and the fact that they produce nitrogen and phosphorus themselves, you can end up in a situation where you start to get the really bad algae growing like cyanobacteria, which of course are toxic for for humans and stock and dogs and, you know, just goes from bad to worse, really. Hmm. Okay, I'm de officially depressed now. <laughs> so what can we do about them? Once they're into a, into a system, it's very, very difficult to eradicate them. We've been doing some research here over the last 10 years looking at whether or not it might be possible to, to fish them down. The theory is if you can get them down to below about 50 kilos per hectare, um, then that should allow environmental recovery. So we're, we're trying to do that in, in at least one lake and see whether we get recovery of water quality and recovery of biodiversity as well. Now tell me about the new work that you're doing around the fish because it's not something I would expect as a technique for fish. No. So the um, technique that we're investigating at the moment is to see whether we can use dogs to sniff out fish. And the work that we've done so far involves taking a fish out of this large tank, putting it into a, a smaller tank where it's confined in a, in a couple of hundred litres of water. And then what we do is we take that water and we give it to the dogs to sniff with other water samples. And then if the dog accurately identifies the water with a fish in it, then the dog gets a treat. And so they are learning to identify that water that contains the smell of the fish. Now that's fascinating because I've heard of dogs being really good noses for all sorts of things like avalanche detector dogs, right. finding yep. people in the snow, yep. conservation dogs, finding rare birds, yep. finding pests like yep. rats and stoats, but fish I would have never thought of. No, no, so it's, a, it's a really quite a, an unusual application of that dog sniffing technique. And, and the dogs that we use are just people's pets. So what we're doing is we're trying to see how sensitive the dogs are to be able to detect the smell of these fish. So with, with the current work that we've done so far, we can take a, a, a one kilo fish, put it in a couple of hundred litres of water, leave it for 24 hours. We can then take a sample of that water and we can dilute that 10,000 fold and the dog will say, yes, that water has had carp in it. Can you put that into some kind of context for me? That's obviously an incredibly small amount of fish odour. That would be equivalent to a single fish in an Olympic swimming pool of water, which is two and a half million litres of water. And most of the shallow lakes around here, um, that would be equivalent to a, a relative fish biomass of around about 15 kilos of fish per hectare, which is well below that 50 kilos per hectare threshold. I really need to see this dog. You need to see the dog, yeah, and see, that, see how the dog works to detect the fish. The dog lab is on the other side of the Waikato University campus, and I arrive just in time. The team is about to put a dog to the test. Hi, I'm Claire Brown. I'm one of the researchers, mostly looking at the dog side of things. Hi, I'm Margaret Crawford. I'm the thesis student attached to this project. And I'm Tim Edwards, also a behavioural researcher. So this lovely girl is Ruby. Hello, Ruby. She looks black labby. She, yes, she is. Are you going to do your sniffy best for me? Yes, yes, she says, yes. Mm -hmm. Ruby has proven very capable. And how many dogs have you put through the, the fish-smelling trials? 
Well, we've had, we've had five dogs working on it as a core group. Um, a couple of them have dropped out for various reasons, so now we've got three, but we're actively recruiting to get it back up to five dogs again. They've got to be suitably motivated by food so that they'll work for the food that we provide. Um, they've got to be comfortable being left here and being you know, um, working independent of their owner. Um, and it's also got to suit the owner's schedules as well because we bring them in and they do some work for half a day usually and then go home again. So it's quite an ask of the owners as well. We'll get the equipment all set up and turned on um, and then Margaret can um, run Ruby through her paces and show you what's involved in the, in the detection of these species. Ruby! He's a good girl, eh? So we just put her in a room and you're shutting the door so that she's on her own and not distracted. So right now the dog is putting its nose into the sample port. It is sniffing and then giving a response depending on what is in that sample. There's nothing there. What does it do? There's always something there, but if it's not the target scent, then what they do is they walk over to their right and they operate a lever with, well, the dogs have got all different topographies for how they do that. Some of them do it with their nose very delicately. Um, others bash it quite hard with their paws. Others just sort of bump their body into it in a slightly random fashion. But nevertheless, somehow they operate that lever and then that rotates the carousel to present the next sample for them to assess. How many samples in there? 17. And there is an infrared beam that goes across that sample port. So anytime the dog puts its nose in the hole, we can tell when that beam's been broken when they're sniffing the sample. And if they break it for long enough, then that's considered to be an indication. And the dog's telling us that the positive sample's present. Then they get a reward. Yeah, that's right. So if they, if they indicate correctly on the right sample, then they'll get a food treat delivered to them. And then... She's got to go back again, and she just keeps doing this, sticking exactly. her nose in. Yeah. Yes, no, I can't smell any fish. Press the next one. Yeah, that's right. So what's actually going on in that port? So they're just sniffing a few molecules drifting around in there? Yeah, well, the way that the chambers are set up in the carousel is they're, they're completely sealed. So it's actually quite a nice collection of the molecules floating around in the, in the air in there. So as soon as they open that flap, they'll get a good, decent exposure to what is available. And so uh, I think that's one of the aspects of the apparatus that makes it a little bit easier for the dogs to work. It's also really nice. The apparatus is built out of stainless steel. Mm -hmm. So that's a, a bonus compared to a lot of other scent detection research with dogs too, where they've used um, sort of wooden um, setups or things made out of plastic or brick etc so we're able to clean this really really well which is really important. So there's a bit of training involved for them isn't there? Yeah there's quite a bit of training it's quite a complex task that we're asking them to do we're asking them first of all to assess the scent and then to respond appropriately um, ignore non-target scents and also to then operate the equipment if it is a non-target scent to move on to the next sample for assessment. And every aspect of the apparatus is automated, so including the data collection, the delivery of the food rewards, and um, everything else so that there's no human involvement, which is quite, a, quite an upgrade from a lot of the research that's been done in scent detection with dogs um, in which a human's involved, which means it's quite easy to cue the dog, give them little unintentional hints about where the target is, um, or to make mistakes in, um, or kind of bring in some subjectivity when it comes to data collection. So Ruby at the moment is going back and forth. So that must mean she's not detecting anything. That's right. That's right. Those are negative samples, so she's just 
they, do, they have to do a quick observation response, meaning they have to break that beam in the sample port for just a brief uh, moment just to make sure we can make sure that they've smelled it. And at that point, that lever becomes activated so they can skip to the next sample or they can continue to break that beam and let us know that they think that sample's positive. She's just disappeared out of shot. Does that mean she's getting a reward? Yep. Yeah, she's off eating. <laughs> and so you can see that when they do that observation response, it can be really quick. So when they stick their nose in that sample port, assess the sample, it can be done in a fraction of a second, and they quite quickly move on to operating the lever to say next sample. It takes them just a couple minutes to evaluate 17 samples usually, and we often run through twice. Because it's a carousel, we can just actually keep um, going through a second time so we can kind of get an idea of how well the dog agrees with themselves, how, how much they agree um, with the first uh, round, and get a little bit more information about their, I guess, confidence in the target being positive or negative, or one of the samples being positive or negative. So what's the accuracy like? Our criteria for them passing from one stage to another right now is that they have to be above 80% accurate on both positives and negative samples. And the reason we evaluate those separately is because a dog could indicate everything is positive and overall it might look like they're doing pretty well, but clearly they're not correctly rejecting or ignoring the negative samples. So we, we look at their performance with both of those separately. But dogs are often very close to 100% accurate on both. She's like a wee machine. Yeah. She is a, yeah. For most of them, this is like a really fun experience that pays off for them really well. Basically, they just need to do a really species-typical behaviour, sniffing things, and they get rewarded for it with food. So for most dogs, once they, once they, they start learning what we want from them, it can go relatively smoothly mm, and quickly. It's a game for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, my dog, when I bring her to the lab, so I bring her here two days a week, as soon as she knows where we're going in the morning, she gets really excited. And the whole way, she doesn't even sit down in the car. She's in the boot with her chin resting on the back seat. And she is just really excited to get here. I'm always worried that there will be an experiment in progress when we turn up because she's really whining when we get to the door. Yeah. Can the yep. dogs differentiate between the koi carp and other kinds of fish like the goldfish? Well, that's the really amazing thing about this. When we, when we started doing this, we thought, well, maybe they're just actually detecting that there have been fish in the water and it doesn't actually matter what sort of fish it is, which wouldn't be particularly useful for what we want to do. Uh, so then we thought, well, we'll try and test whether or not they can actually discriminate between different species of fish. Um, and sure enough, at those minimum dilutions that we've looked at, they can. So the first thing we did was to test them against uh, brown bullhead catfish, which is another invasive species that's causing problems in some areas, and they can discriminate between those two species. And then we thought, well, let's really challenge them and test the species that is most closely related to koi carp, which is goldfish. And as you've seen, they are so closely related that they can actually hybridise, and sure enough, at that same dilution, they can tell the difference between goldfish and carp. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Do you know what it is exactly that the dogs are detecting? Other than the basic research project where we do know exactly what it is they're detecting, we don't know. And in some sense, it doesn't really matter because either they can do it or they can't. And in all likelihood, it's a bouquet, kind of a collection of compounds. We are interested, though, in answering that question, and we would like to partner up with um, analytical chemists, and we've already started um, to develop those relationships so that we can start to answer those questions. One of the metaphors that helped me to understand what it was we were looking for was the idea of signal detection, and in fact the dogs are very good at detecting a signal in the midst of noise, in the same way that we, we would be listening 
to a variety of sounds in the background, but we would still be able to distinguish what somebody was saying. Rather than the idea that we're working in a sterile environment, there's no noise and there's a whisper, and yes, I can hear the whisper, that's not what we're doing. And that's why they're so useful in field work as well, because in the field oftentimes you have all different kinds of background odours and all kinds of things going on, um, and they're still able to pick out that target. It's an advantage of canine scent detection as compared to possibly something like a genetic analysis of what's present in the water because a genetic analysis can be very, very specific but it can also tell you that there are pigs present in the water and chickens present in the water, whereas that doesn't matter to a dog. They're picking up combinations of things. The fish detecting is going really well. So how does Nick Ling see the dog skills being used in the real world? The way that we see this potentially being used from an environmental point of view is we might be able to take water samples from different lakes um, and A, determine whether or not they have carp in them. Um, because when the fish are at a very low biomass, it's, it's very difficult to detect whether or not the lake does actually have fish in it. At that sort of biomass, you could go out in there and fish for a week and you might not catch any fish. So this could be a really quick and easy technique to be able to take a water sample from a lake and say, has this lake potentially got carbon? And if we get a positive result in that, then we can go and put all the effort in in order to confirm that. The other potential use could be in areas that we know have carbon. So some of the big lakes, shallow lakes around here that have carbon, you could potentially take water samples from around the lake and see where you have a concentration of carp. Because these fish, when they spawn, they tend to select certain sites. And if we can identify where those key spawning sites are in a lake, then we may be able to target those in order to get more bang for our buck in terms of removing those fish or potentially isolating those spawning sites from allowing the fish to get in there and breathe. That's been a technique that's been very successful in a couple of lakes in Tasmania. And the way they've been doing it is radio tagging fish and then following those fish around in the lake. And when they all start to come together into a spawning aggregation, then they can target those fish for removal, but they can also identify where that spawning site is. And they put in these massive barrier nets to prevent the fish from getting in there to spawn. And that's been quite successful at actually preventing spawning of those fish in that lake. We may be able to use this as a kind of a, a quantitative technique. So where we are trying to fish a population down, in order to get a relatively good idea of what biomass we've reached, we may be able to use this technique to identify whether or not the dogs can easily detect the presence of fish in the water. And once we've fished the population down to a certain level where the dogs no longer indicate on that water, that's OK, now we've reached a successfully low biomass. We may not have eradicated the population, but we can at least um, determine that we have actually reached a low biomass. The other technique that, that people um, are developing for measuring the presence of fish, which they're doing a lot in, in Australia, is uh, environmental DNA or eDNA. So, so that's when you find incredibly trace elements of DNA. Yes. Every living organism is constantly shedding its DNA into the environment, um, and fish do that as well. And so people are using that, as again, as a technique to detect the presence of invasive fish species. It's very species-specific, and... Uh, they can detect the presence of fish at very low levels. Currently, with the levels that we're operating with at the dogs, that's around about 20 times more sensitive than the current eDNA limit. And that level that we're working with at the dogs at the moment, that 10,000-fold dilution, that's not necessarily how low they can go. That's just how low we've gone so far. They may very well be able to go much lower than that. We just don't know yet. 
So I think this potential number of applications that we see this very quick and easy techniques being potentially useful. Tim Edwards also has a number of other applications in mind for the detector dogs. So we are doing quite a bit of basic research and we're using some standard chemicals that people use for um, scent detection research in laboratory settings. One of those is amyl acetate, which smells a little bit like bananas or jackfruit. So we use that because it's something that we can control um, very carefully and, and it's very well defined. So we can do some basic research around the learning processes associated with um, scent detection. Um, but we're also um, just beginning a project on cancer detection and um, we'll be collecting samples from a clinic here in Hamilton at the Waikato DHB. And we'll be training dogs to sniff out lung cancer using breath samples and saliva samples. And we'll be comparing their performance with those two sample types and then performing a big blind test to see how they do with samples, which um, we don't know the status of. That's uh, currently in the sample collection phase. We haven't started training those dogs, but we're recruiting them now. So why lung cancer in particular? Is it just because it's associated with breathing and with air? It's not the main reason that we've uh, selected lung cancer. One of the big reasons is that there's a real need for a quick and cheap diagnostic tool for sort of screening to insert somewhere into that whole um, diagnostic pathway um, to improve our ability to screen and detect for lung cancer. There is a real need there because the existing technology is quite expensive and quite cumbersome and often quite intrusive. And as a result, a lot of people don't get screened until it's much too late, um, and until the symptoms are you know, quite severe. And at that point, um, mortality rates are quite high. So we're hoping to improve the availability of uh, cheap, efficient, but effective screening methods so that pe- people are more likely to be screened and potentially even look at some early detection Um, and that would be further down the road. Um, But as a starting point, we'll be looking at um, evaluating clinical samples. Thanks, Tim. That was behavioural psychologist Tim Edwards. We also heard from behavioural researcher Claire Brown, student Margaret Crawford, and fish biologist Nick Ling, and they are all at Waikato University. They tell me they'd like to recruit more dogs for their trials. So if you live in Hamilton, have a dog that is very motivated by food and you can regularly drop it off at the dog lab for a few hours at a time, they'd love to hear from you. There are contact details for Tim and Claire on our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld, where you'll also find a great wee video of some of the dogs showing just how good they are at sniffing fish samples. Check it out. If you listen to podcasts, you can download them from our webpage or subscribe to RNZ Our Changing World wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Facebook and Twitter as RNZ Science, and you can also get in touch via email, ourchangingworld at radionz.co.nz. Thanks for your company. I'm back next week, but for now, it's good night from me, Alison Balance. Kia pai topo. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.